You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this morning, connection with our text, will be from Titus chapter 2, the verses 11 through 14. So we'll be considering this morning the last few verses of this book of Titus. See how those verses sum up the, the theme, the message from this book. And we find that theme in chapter 2, in the middle of the book, chapter 2. And so we'll read that first of all together, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And we'll go further to... Verse 12 in chapter 3 and continue reading there. Last few verses of this book. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Our text this morning is Titus chapter 3 verse 14. We've already read that together, but we'll read it together again. And I'd invite you to open your Bibles to that and and keep your Bibles open because we're going to be spending some time looking at the the rest of this letter as well, in addition to the verses that surround our text. So we'll read together, first of all, our text, Titus chapter 3 at verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, last week as we looked at the verses before our reading that we had this morning, the verses 1 through 11 in Titus chapter 3, You were asked the question, you you were asked to consider the past week and to consider your actions during that week. To consider how you might have mishandled a certain event, a certain time, how things in your lives may have compiled to the point that you felt obligated perhaps, or at least out of weakness, you reacted to someone in anger or in spite, and then had to spend the time after that figuring out how you were going to clean up the mess that you had made. 
This morning, I'd like you to consider this past week. Think of what you spent your time on, what kind of week it was at work or at home, the kind of things that you were busy doing. Did you have a productive week? I'll ask you a different question, and that's this. How much time did you waste this past week? How much time did you, did you waste? How much time did you spend with a, a task in front of you where you were not doing the very thing that you had set out to do or that you were supposed to be doing? For some of you, you might be able to summarize all of this by answering one question. How much time did you spend on Facebook this week? Along with other aspects of the internet, of course, it's well known that that Facebook and many other aspects, things about the internet is, is causing what you might call a productivity crisis in our time. Companies, shut off access to sites like Facebook, sometimes personal email, other sites that are known to be time-wasting websites. And they don't shut it down just in case someone gets the idea to go on there. No, these companies have reacted to the fact that their employees are spending way too much time on the Internet wasting time. During the time that we should be working or doing other things, sit down to a task, we're increasingly becoming distracted and undisciplined and frittering our time and energy away in in frivolous pursuits. Have you experienced that? I know I have. Well, Facebook and these these time-wasting websites that that always seem to be drawing our attention away from, from the task at hand, they're like a, a microcosm of our lives. They're like a, a little picture of, of the bigger stuff that's actually happening in our lives. That is, that productivity is is more than just about what we set out to do, especially when we're on our computer or when we're when we're on the internet. But our lives are much bigger than that. But still, there, there's always these things that, that draw our attention away. And so we have a task at hand, but then we end up spinning our wheels and spending our time doing the things that are completely apart from that task. We're constantly under pressure to live unproductive and unfruitful lives. Not merely as employees. Not merely as family members, but as Christians, as Christians and everything that encompasses our lives as Christians, we're constantly under pressure to live unproductive and unfruitful lives. The Lord Jesus Christ lays out for us our, our mandate and our mission. The Lord Jesus Christ calls us into his kingdom where he is Lord and he tells us what to do and what we ought to be busying our lives with. 
And instead, we spend our lives doing all sorts of other things. We struggle. And sometimes we we don't even struggle because we've completely given over to the unproductive and unfruitful things to live lives that are fruitful and useful to the kingdom and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, it should not be this way. It should not be this way. Rather, as the Apostle Paul tells us in our text this morning, we must live fruitful lives. We must live fruitful lives. That's the clear message from verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live, that's the summary of the whole verse there, not live unproductive or unfruitful lives. We must live fruitful lives. So we'll consider what is a fruitful life. Well, there's two aspects of it. It's a, it's a life of good works. That's the fruit that fills a fruitful life. It's good works. And in the second place, it's a life that, that meets the needs around it. It's a life that, that notices them and, and goes out and seeks them out and meets them. And finally, this fruitful life is a life that's fed by grace. Fed by grace. So first of all, this fruitful life is a life of good works. So what is a fruitful or a productive life? What is a fruitful life? Is is a fruitful life a busy life? If you thought about this past week and you thought, you know what, I didn't even have time to waste time this past week because I was so busy doing all kinds of stuff. Does that guarantee that you had a fruitful week in the kingdom of Christ? Not necessarily. If you worked long hours this past week, so that you were really busy, you barely had time for sleep, does that mean that you had a fruitful life? A fruitful week? Not necessarily. If you were really busy running around, helping this person, getting that person, picking this person up from soccer just to drop that person off at baseball, going home, then going out again, does that mean that you had a fruitful week? Not necessarily. So what is a fruitful or productive life? Well, the clear answer from verse 14, although not a complete answer, is that it is a life of good works. Our people must learn to devote themselves to what is good. And that what is good is simply good works. Our people must learn learn to devote themselves to good works. And if they do that, then they will not live unfruitful lives. But this understanding what these good works are needs more context. And if you've been present during this series, and if you've been paying attention, then you'll realize, you'll have realized that that doing good works has been a major theme of this letter of Paul to Titus. And here Paul reemphasizes the point, our people must learn. They must do this. And it requires learning. It requires growing in this. 
Now that's strong language. Doing good works, it's not an, it's not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not something that we do when we have time for it at the end of a busy day. Doing good works is not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not something that, that's only for the super Christians or the super involved. There, there's that saying that, you know, in any sort of group or organization, you've got 10% of the people who do 90% of the work. That's not the game plan of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not calling us all together so that some of us are going to be productive in his kingdom and the rest can just sort of go along for the ride. He calls us to fruitful lives. It's an essential part of our Christian life. Because doing good works is the inevitable result of being united to Jesus Christ. A fruit tree bears fruit. That's the image that our Lord Jesus used many times. He spoke of fruit trees and he said, a good tree bears good fruit. A a, a fruit tree bears fruit. A Christian produces good works. And if it doesn't, the Lord Jesus says, then it's useless. It's good only for cutting down and throwing into the fire. So what does this fruitful life look like? Well, let's let's walk through this letter of Paul to Titus and consider the life of good works that he lays out. This godly life we learn about already in verse 1. In verse 1 of Titus 1. As Paul introduces himself, he says, Working for this life of, of good works is what I'm all about as an apostle. He says he's a a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That leads to godliness. A knowledge of the truth that works itself out in godliness, in good works. That's the mission of the Apostle Paul. Good works going further are to be the love of the leadership in the church. If you go to 1 verse 8, you have there the qualifications for elders. And it says, the elder must be hospitable and one who loves what is good. Who loves what is good. And who, by all the other qualifications, acts according to that. The absence of false works... The absence of of good works is how you can identify false teachers in the church. It's that strong. We see that in verse 16. We were learning about the false teachers there. And Paul said, these guys, they, they claim to know God, but by their actions, by their works, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and then unfit for doing anything good. You can recognize these guys, Paul says. They're, they're the, they kind of look like a tree. They look like a fruit tree, but then you, you go up close and you realize there's no fruit. It's not a fruit tree. It's an imposter. It shouldn't be there. It needs to be removed. So you can identify false teachers by the, the lack of fruit that their lives produce. 
And then in verse, in chapter two, Paul lays out in, in category, dividing it into categories of the church, what this fruitful life is to look like for the older men and for the older women, younger women, younger men. He says, this is what a, a good works filled life looks like. For example, the older women, we see in verse three on, are to be reverent in the way that they live. And we saw when we looked at that, that actually that that's speaking about a, a priestly life. That older women are to live as though they're living in the temple. And their whole life is devoted to the service of God. Remember the imagery of a bunch of priests sitting around, you know, people are coming and, and wanting to present their sacrifices. And, and there are the priests, they're off to the side, they're sitting in a circle, having a little chat, drinking some wine, enjoying the day. If you walked in the temple in, in the Old Testament times and you saw that going on, you'd say, something's wrong here. The priests aren't supposed to live like that. Priests are supposed to be serving. They're supposed to be helping the people and, and living holy and godly lives and lives committed to Love and good deeds. Paul says the older women are to live like that. And they're to teach that sort of lifestyle to the younger women. Titus, the pastor, we read in verse 7, is to set an example for the young men by doing what is good. His life is to be a life full of good fruit in opposition to the false teachers. And he's to show that fruit. It's to be obvious and present so that the young men in the congregation can learn from it. He's to live an exemplary life in every way. And especially, Paul says, in, in how he uses his words as a minister of the gospel, his language is especially important for the young men to learn from. As Paul addresses the slaves further in chapter 2 from verse 9 on, he communicates a, a very important principle. So it's it's directly related to the slaves, but it's a principle that, that has value for all of us. And that is, when you do what is good in the calling that God has given you, then you make the teaching about Christ attractive. Paul said to the slaves, when you do what's good, when you obey your master, when you seek what he needs and wants and you do that, then you actually, you actually adorn the teaching of Christ. You make that teaching of Christ beautiful by your actions, by the way that you live. See, the opposite of that is hypocrisy, of, of saying that you are a Christian and you live according to by faith in God, according to all the commands of God, but then you, you don't do it. That's extremely destructive. But when your grace-changed life backs up your testimony about God's grace, then you, you provide an, an illustration and support for the work of Christ, your Savior, for your boss, or for your neighbor, or for your co-worker, or for your friend. As Paul continues in that very important summary in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, 
He teaches that lest we start to believe the lie that this good works filled life is something that's natural to us or that comes from our own efforts. He makes it very clear where these good works come from. So he's constantly urging, I work for good works. You're to live a life of good works. This is what good works looks like. And don't forget, this is where good works come from. They don't, they don't come up from the, the soil of your natural self. No, they are the work of Jesus Christ. These works come from the right hand of God. They come from God. They have their source in God. God works them in us. That's where they come from. It's Jesus Christ in verses 13 and 14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And finally, as we considered last week, the most general definition of these good works are that they contribute to the well-being of the community, of society. Living out this life of good works leads us to honor and obey those in authority over us and to work to the good of the community in which God has placed us. So we can specifically adorn the teaching of Christ in, in the personal relationships that we have and also in living these lives in the community we can adorn the teaching of christ our savior these are works that serve your neighbor and make their life better improve the quality of their life this is the life that a christian is to live a life full of good works. This is a fruitful life. It's not a busy life. It's not a life in which you're going right to the max. It's not a frantic life, a frenetic life. It's a life characterized by doing what is good. In what you do, doing what is good. It's a life in which you show love and kindness in all that you do. We go to our second point. Because this life of good works is part of the fruitful life, but there's more to it. It's also a life that meets pressing needs. And in order to consider this, we look more broadly at at these verses around here. People have different views about these verses that come at the end of a letter. Generally, what we tend to do when we come to these verses is sort of say to ourselves, well, here's a whole bunch of names that I don't recognize. I don't really know what's going on here. It's interesting that Paul says hi to this person and that person and kind of tells us about things that are going on, but it's not really relevant for my life, and so I'm just going to kind of skim over it. And there's other people who who think, oh wow, here's some historical detail, and I'm going to figure out who Artemis and Tychicus and, and all these people are, just for the, the historical value of it, just because I'm interested in sort of tidbits of information like that. But these last few verses of every letter, and this letter in particular, 
are, are not just some sort of add-on that we can ignore, nor are they only there to give us tidbits of trivial historical information, but rather there, there's a message, there's a point in all of this. All scripture is God-breathed and useful, and so is this closing part of the letter. So what does this closing part teach us? Well, to understand that, we have to understand what, what exactly is going on here. In verse 12, we meet two men, Artemis and Tychicus. And Artemis is someone we don't know anything about. But Paul said that, I'm not sure who I'm going to send for you, Artemis or Tychicus, but when they come, then you can come and join me at Nicopolis. So one of these men is going to come and going to give relief to Titus in Crete. Artemis, we don't know anything about. Tychicus actually shows up in three different letters of Paul. And every time he's he's commended by Paul as a faithful worker, a valued worker. But it seems from later letters, especially to Timothy, that Tychicus went on to Ephesus. And therefore, he probably didn't go to Crete, where Titus was. And so Artemis was probably the one that ended up going to Crete, relieving Titus of his duties there, so that Titus could join with Paul at Nicopolis. In verse 13, we meet Zenus the lawyer. Like Artemis is a person that we meet only here. And Apollos. Apollos we know much about. Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew who learned about the faith under Priscilla and Aquila and became a, a powerful and effective preacher of the gospel. It's these men who were probably delivering the letter. Verse 13, do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything that they need. So presumably they were the ones who delivered the letter to Titus. They would stay just for a, a brief time of refreshment and then continue on their way. And so Paul is telling Titus to give them what they need for the next leg of their journey, and we don't know exactly what that is. So what do we learn from this account? Well, we learn in the first place that the work, uh, that the, the ministry of the gospel This work that Titus is doing in Crete is not work that is accomplished by one person. It's not accomplished by one person. But it's accomplished by a whole network of fellow workers. That's what sort of gets opened up to our views here. You, You tend to think that it's just Paul writing to Titus and Titus, you're there and this is what you have to do. But then at the end, he opens it up and he says, now there's all these other workers and they're, they're traveling all around the Mediterranean and they're helping each other and they're supporting each other. They're holding each other accountable. So we see that this ministry of the gospel is not the work of just one person, but it's the work of many people. And this ending in Titus really only gives us a small picture. The picture that emerges from the whole New Testament is that there's, there's workers traveling all over the Mediterranean. Preaching the gospel, building up the church, carrying out the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just these men whose whose whole life is devoted to this ministry of the gospel who are the, the fellow workers of Titus and of Paul. But what we learn here is that the whole church 
makes up the fellow workers that carry out the ministry of the gospel. This is clear to us in, in that very at the very end where Paul says, grace be with you all. He's writing this letter to Titus, but he's actually intending it for everyone. And he's saying, Titus, you need to provide for these men. But you're not the only one who needs to provide for them. Rather, and this is the context of our text, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Specifically in this context, our people must help you to support and to carry out the ministry of the gospel. And so this life of fruitfulness is a life that's carried out in in help and support of the ministry of the gospel. Now, in the NIV, you have it translated there, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order they may provide for daily necessities. And it's unclear there what those necessities are. Are they the necessities of the people in Crete or are they other people's daily necessities? But I think the the English Standard Version provides a, a better translation here when it says, so as to help in cases of urgent need. And that makes it clear that he's talking about the need of Zenos the lawyer and Apollos and whomever else may be in need. So our people must learn to, to support these men and to support this ministry that's bringing the gospel all around the world. Our, our people must learn to support them and to help furnish them with the necessities required to do their work, just as Paul had urged Titus himself to do. And so there's two applications from this, one narrower and one broader. The narrow one is this, the ministry of the gospel that has revealed Jesus Christ to you, that's repeated several times in this letter, remember, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. The love and kindness of God our Savior has appeared. It's appeared to you. It's appeared through the ministry of the gospel. Your grace-changed life, your good works, are the fruit of the ministry of the gospel that you first received. And so, that ministry, that, that one that has changed you, is to be one that you yourself support and help provide for the needs of. Yes, you, you, you must support it. It's a part of that life of good works that God's people must show. And yes, you will want to support it. How couldn't you? It's changed your life. It's taken you, as we go back to chapter 3, verse 3, it's taken you from living in that foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved, living in malice and envy, hated and hating kind of life. It's taken you from that life and it's it's transported you into a new life in which you're being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ as this ministry is coming to you. So wouldn't you want to support that? Wouldn't you want to give that to other people? Of course you would. And this ministry doesn't just operate by itself. It operates, it requires the whole church to partner with it. We are all fellow workers, as Paul says to the Philippians, of this work. And and the broader application, the second and broader application that fits with this is that our good works really do matter. Paul says our people must devote themselves to doing good works, to, to supporting this ministry of the gospel. 
He says, where there's urgent need for this ministry, we are to fill that need. Yes, there's a need regarding the support of ministers, of people whose lives are devoted to this work, but there's more needs than that, isn't there? Because we haven't just been transported out of that life, that enslaved, hating, and hated life, but we know people who are in that life. And so as we're changed by grace, we see needs. We see people who need this message of the gospel. We see people who are hurting in this broken world. We see needs all around us, and the good works that Jesus Christ produces in us are works that go to meet those needs, and provide for them, help people in them. This world is a world that's full of needs. It's a world that's full of brokenness. And so, brothers and sisters, on these two applications, in the support of ministry of the gospel, and in meeting the needs that we see in our own lives, are we doing this? Is this fruit evident in our life? Are we busy with this? Does this take up our time? This is how we can understand whether we are living fruitful lives or not. If we can see these fruits within us? Are we seeing and meeting those needs that are all around us? Because a grace-changed life seeks them out and goes after them and, and wants to help and wants to bring change, the change that we ourselves have experienced through the love and the kindness of God. And a grace-changed life sees that that the most effective way for this change to be experienced is through the message of God's grace. The proclamation of the gospel of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so it's a life of good works. It's a life that meets daily or meets necessities around us. It's also thirdly a life that's fed by grace. A life that's fed by grace doesn't need to be a long point, but you must hear it. Otherwise, the first two don't work, and they won't work. This life is fed by grace. This motivation, this the source of good works, is from outside of ourselves in the grace of God. The source from which good works flow is the grace of God that has been revealed through the work of Jesus Christ and applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. In the language of fruit, it's grace that is the sunshine and the water that causes the tree to come alive and to grow and to bear rich and healthy fruit. It's grace. The shorthand for that is It's God. It's God. The source for this life is in God and his grace. It's not within us. Search in vain. 
we'll, we'll live in vain. We'll, we'll live busy lives and we'll think that we're doing what's right, but it won't be fruitful. Because the source is outside of ourselves, it's in God. In grace, God's the one who sent his son into the world so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God has done that. In grace, God has brought that message of, uh, has that message of salvation proclaimed throughout the world. It's God who does that. In grace, God has caused us to hear this message of the good news with the call to, to repent and to believe. In grace, God has sent his spirit to regenerate our hearts so that we could take that call to heart, so that we could feel terribly sorry for our sins, and so that we could begin to delight in God's mercy to us. These things didn't happen within ourselves. God did them. In grace, God truly does forgive our sins and declare us righteous in Christ. In grace, Jesus Christ's victory over sin and evil and death is applied to us. And, and his, God's lordship is established over us. In grace, the Holy Spirit goes to work on our lives and does that, that painful but awesome work of, of rooting out the sin within us, the idolatry and the sinful desires and the bad habits building in us. And, and begins to build in us true worship and godliness and self-control. It's God's work. And he does it in grace. He does it not accounting our goodness at the beginning, but he does it because of his love and kindness. What is grace? Grace is the love and kindness that God shows to us Even though in no way have we earned it, do we deserve it, or are we able to repay it? How does a life turn from being a life that's unproductive and unfruitful? A life that's given over to sin and sinful desires? A life that's going off on the wrong direction? How does God... Take that life and change it. He does it by his almighty power. He does it in grace. In grace, God takes our useless, fruitless lives and makes them full of fruit. In grace, he takes those broken and the the broken and rusted over, completely useless machinery of our lives transports it, he restores it, he goes to work on it, and he makes it run again. He makes it productive for him and for his kingdom and for his glory. And so, brothers and sisters, we must live fruitful lives. Are you feeling fruitful this morning? As you considered this past week, did you see fruit of the grace and the love and the kindness of God at work in your life? Do you recognize that there, there's more room for fruit and sometimes even the fruit you have doesn't really look all that nice? Maybe nobody would even want it. Well, that's why, brothers and sisters, there's no greater blessing than the one that the Apostle Paul gives at the end of this letter. 
And it's the one that is with us all in Jesus Christ. Because of the loving and faithful God that we have, this blessing is with you. Grace be with all of you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.